When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this episode, we're exploring the history of the Philadelphia Athletics. This iconic team has a long and storied history, featuring some of the game's most legendary players and groundbreaking innovations. We'll cover their story from founding to relocation. Today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's show. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. I want to thank you for joining me and taking some time out for your upcoming week to just listen to this show. We're going back to the well for one of our more uh, asked-for segments on this show, which is our uh, baseball team autopsies uh, segments that we've been doing. And today we're going to look at the Philadelphia Athletics, which has been a absolute joy to research. I think you're really going to like this episode. It might go a little longer than some of our uh, more recent ones, but there's just so much good stuff to cover. So I'm excited to get to it. If I sound like I have a duck shoved up my nose, that's because I am sick right now. I actually put off recording this on Friday, hoping I would get better, but it's still... I know I don't sound great, so (laughs) thanks for bearing with me on that. Uh, Real quick before we jump into the episode, I want to welcome some new individuals to the community who signed up for the email newsletter. Stephen G., Joanne K., Silvana R., Bill A., ALS Junk 47, XC69731. Thank you for joining as free subscribers. I also want to give a special shout out to JRB, who signed up as a paid subscriber this past week. Thank you for your financial support of the show. To all of you, I appreciate you joining up. It's great to be able to connect with you on a on a deeper level than just checking into the show once a week. So if you'd like to join the newsletter and the growing community that we have, you get some perks. You get a free weekly newsletter right in your inbox that comes with the main show and you get added photos and videos and links so you can get deeper into the topics we're talking about. And in addition to that, you get access to the bonus show called This Week in Baseball History where we talk about some of the major events that happened in baseball history for that particular week. You get all that for free. So you just have to go to sign up at uh, rounders.substack.com. You go there. You can join for free and get all these things. And then if you can, if you choose to, you want to help us grow the show, you can become a paid subscriber. And if you decide to do that, you can see all of the upcoming episodes. You get access to the main show a day earlier than everybody else, and you get it ad-free. And you get the opportunity to have your feedback read in episode. I ask you questions, and I want your feedback so I can feature what you have to think uh, with the topics that we covered. And you get all that for the cost of one cup of coffee per month, right? You can't go wrong. And then, of course, we have our starting nine uh, section where you get really direct uh, say in the future direction of the show. Um Either three of those tiers, if you have the ability to uh, give, if you have the ability to just sign up and support this uh, attempt to be able to grow independent sports media and just 
promote baseball, please do so. Remember, you just have to go to rounders.substack.com. So with that said, let's jump into our topic for today. We're going to do a deep dive into the Philadelphia Athletics, right? Just just the city of Philadelphia we're looking at for this episode. We're going to cover their early years. We're going to talk about their star players. We're going to talk about the best years the team had. And then we're going to look at what happened to them. Why did they end up leaving the city? What happened there? So let's go ahead and jump in to that topic. I'm excited to share it with you. Let's go. The Philadelphia Athletics were one of the original franchises of the American League, which was formed in 1901 to compete against the existing top league at the time, the National League. So the principal owner of the American League, Bancroft Johnson, declared the American League the official second major league when it was founding and certainly was, you know, a top tier uh, competition to try and draw fans away from the National League, to be able to give players a bit more in terms of rights. There was a lot going on with that creation. Of course, it came down to money. But the American League saw the creation of this modern Philadelphia Athletics official pro baseball club. And they were created in Philadelphia specifically to compete against the Philadelphia Phillies, who were one of the top teams in the National League during this time. So it was the creation of this intercity rivalry where you had one club representing each major league, American and National. Now, the Athletics were bought, purchased, and and created by a group of investors. And that group included Ben Scheib, who's going to get his own episode because he's such an interesting guy and really revolutionized so many parts of the game. But he was one of the principal owners. And then we also had legendary Connie Mack, who was also a member of this group of owners. And then you had Philadelphia sports writers Sam Jones and Frank Huff. This made up the main group that brought the Philadelphia athletics into existence. Now, Connie Mack, in addition to being an owner, was also recruited to manage the club. And he was the guy who persuaded Ben Scheib to step in and put up money and join this group of investors. So the Athletics are born. Where did the name come from, the Athletics? That was not an original creation. The name was actually taken from a previous baseball club that had existed in the city known as the Athletic Baseball Club of Philadelphia. Now, this previous team was actually a part of the founding group that created the National League in 1876, but that squad ended up folding after just one season. So the name was resurrected for this new American League version of the club. Where did the Philadelphia Athletics play their home games? Well, when the club first started off, they made their home at Columbia Park, and this is where they played from 1901 to 1908. Now, initially, the stadium had a limited capacity, only about 9,500 seats. This was later expanded to 13,600 seats as the owners added bleachers in the outfield to meet the demand. And at times for some sold-out games, additional seating was actually sold at the top of nearby neighboring homes. Some enterprising individuals would uh, rent out space on their rooftops where people could watch the game from there if they couldn't get into the park, especially during sellouts. Now, Columbia Park had some quirks. Uh, The stadium only had one dressing room, and that was for the home team, for the athletics. So if you were a visiting club, you were required to change at your hotel before getting to the ballpark. Also, Columbia Park was located in Brewerytown, Pennsylvania, which was where a lot of... uh, 
alcohol manufacturing facilities were, but beer sales were banned at the park during this time. So as we get into talking about what happened after Columbia Park, I want to flashback real quick because during this time period, when the athletics started playing at Columbia Park, something really terrible happened across town at the Phillies ballpark. And on August 8th, 1903, we saw the site of the deadliest stadium disaster in baseball history. And we actually covered the whole topic in an episode that you can check out in the show notes. It's known as Black Saturday. I would invite you to go back and listen to that episode after this one. To summarize what happened was a section of the bleachers collapsed at the Philadelphia's home stadium, Baker Bowl, and it killed several fans. So the athletics responded to this. They're only two years into their existence, but they responded by reinforcing their own bleachers with additional wood joists, and they opened Columbia Park to the Phillies to be able to play at until the repairs were done on their own stadium to fix that collapsed seating. So the Phillies actually played 16 games at Columbia Park in August and September of 1903. So there's a connection there. Both teams actually played in this first park where the athletics made their home. In addition to that, the Philadelphia Giants of the Negro Leagues also played their home games at Columbia Stadium in the early 1900s. They would get uh, to be able to do that when the athletics were on the road. That was the arrangement they came to with the owners of the athletics. So we saw three teams play home games in this park uh, that was created specifically for the athletics early on. Now we fast forward to 1909, a new ballpark was built for the athletics and it was unveiled before the 1909 season. It was known as Scheib Park named after Ben Scheib, one of the principal owners of the club. It was also received the nickname Connie Mack stadium. And this ballpark was a modern marble. It was the first steel and concrete baseball stadium that existed. Pretty cool, huh? It also had some other notable uh, innovations to it. Probably the most significant was it featured, for the first time ever, in a sports stadium, a cantilevered roof. And that allowed for unobstructed views of the field from every seat, rain or shine. So if you're wondering what a cantilevered roof is, imagine with me a roof that extends horizontally, but it's only supported at one end. So this new design ensured that there were no beams that got in the way of any seats in the park. So instead of having beams on both sides to support the roof, it was only on one side, the back side. So, you know, being someone who sat in the old seats at Fenway Park many times, sometimes you have those seats that are directly behind one of these columns and you have to like look around it to be able to see. And that was very common especially in early ballpark designs. And Scheib Park was the first to create something that got rid of that annoyance. So remember, no beams to be able to block uh, viewership from anybody that's in the park. It allowed the fans to enjoy what was happening on the field, no matter if the weather was good or not. And really, it was just, it was one of those things where Scheib Park set a new level for what ballparks could be. As a matter of fact, historian Paul Dixon said that, quote, people had never seen anything like it. It was a new way of looking at stadiums, not just for baseball, but for any sport, end quote. The other defining thing about Scheib Park was it boasted one of the largest seating capacities of its time. It held almost 20,000 people. It had really impressive dimensions. It had this innovative design. I included some pictures in the email newsletter. Even the street view, uh, 
the aerial view. It's a beautiful stadium, especially if you think about the fact that it was built in 1909. So certainly it became a pioneer in modern stadium design. And this is where the athletics called home. And one uh, just little note aside, I had mentioned earlier that with Columbia Park, the nearby homes were selling rooftop seats for uh, fans to be able to watch the game. Well, that wasn't a problem in the new Scheib Park because the team made sure that they built what was called a, quote, spite fence, which blocked view from the nearby buildings around the stadium to prevent that uh, private enterprising from happening. So the Athletics played the rest of their home games at Scheib Park until they relocated from Philadelphia. And like I said, the Phillies, uh, they played some games in Columbia Park during that disaster. They also played some games in Scheib Park as well, beginning in 1938. That became their home base. And the reason they didn't move sooner was because of the fact that they couldn't get out of their lease with that dilapidated Baker Bowl where that um, terrible accident occurred. So Scheib Park became home not only to the athletics, but to the Phillies as well as time went on. Overall, the stadium hosted eight World Series contests. It saw two MLB All-Star Games in 1943 and 1952. And in 1939, it was the site of the first night game that was played in American League history. So even after the A's left town, the Phillies continued using Scheib Park until it closed in 1970. So those were the two places where the Philadelphia Athletics played their home games when they were active. Let's go ahead and talk about the logos and the uniforms. What did the team look like? Well, no matter what city the athletics have played in, they've remained largely the same in terms of their logo. So the very first one was a blue A that had Gothic lettering. And that stayed that way until 1920, when the team unveiled a new logo of an elephant, which replaced the A logo for eight seasons. Now, after eight seasons, the club then switched back to that lettered logo for one season, but the elephant was so popular that they went back to it. And eventually the club featured an elephant with an A on the animal's back. And that uh, logo combination has certainly carried on through the other cities that the A's have played in. But for the most part, that that gothic A that we've all come to know in terms of being synonymous with the athletics, that started in 1901 and it's carried through to present day. Now for the uniforms... The Athletics, again, have always kept that A on their jerseys for the graphic. That really hasn't changed, even with the introduction of the elephant as the primary logo. So it the, had the A on the jerseys. Uh, the first jerseys that the Athletics wore had collars and button-up chests. So it was a pullover jersey with just a button-up chest, nice collar on it. And it was a common look for the time period. The hats that they wore... For their inaugural season had a brim and it had colored stripes that went all the way around. Now, a few years after this inaugural look was introduced, the team ended up ditching the collars on their jerseys and made them full button downs. And that started around the 1920s. And it's basically been that look was that look for the Philadelphia athletics for the rest of their history. Their hats also changed when their jerseys changed. So instead of having those three rings around the hat, it became a solid color with only the lettered logo on it. Now, in terms of colors, the jersey colors for home were always either an off-white or a white. And then, of course, they were a gray for the away games. The one exception to that was in 1950. 
That was the 50th anniversary for the American League, and to honor that, the Athletics wore uniforms that were trimmed with blue and gold. And this was done in honor of the golden jubilee of the, quote, grand old man of baseball, being one of the original clubs that was an honor that they felt was bestowed to them. And that was uh, something they did a little bit different for their jerseys during their history. So that's what you could expect the athletics to look like if you saw a game while they were playing in Philadelphia. So now that we've talked about the team's founding, the stadiums they played in, the logos and uniforms, let's talk about the players that made up the clubs that people got to watch during this time. So the Athletics were one of the first teams to make a habit out of trying to poach players from other leagues, particularly the rival National League. And this started right off the bat from their inaugural season in 1901. As a matter of fact, that inaugural uh, roster was made up primarily of transfers from other pro National League clubs. So one of the primary players that was on that inaugural season team was then-superstar Nap LaJoy. And LaJoy had played the previous season in 1900 for the Crosstown Philadelphia Phillies. And just to give you an idea of how good this guy was, he was a uh, multi-time batting champion in the National League. He gets poached by the Athletics. He plays the 1901 season over there. He wins the American League's first batting title, and he hit 426. That's still the league record for batting average. It's crazy, huh? The Phillies were so mad that they got this guy taken away from them by their crosstown rivals that they went to the state Supreme Court and they asked them to step in and invalidate the contract between LaJoy and the Athletics. So they thought they were going to get LaJoy back, but what happened was he ended up having to not play for either team and he ended up going to play for Cleveland after the 1901 season because of the state Supreme Court's decision that, okay, the contract's invalid, but you can't go back and play for the Phillies if you can't play for the Athletics. So the move didn't really work out for the Phillies. They ended up losing them anyways, but the Athletics did as well. So you had that crosstown rivalry really showing itself early on uh, in the American League and National League's history. So aside from that, the early Athletics roster was 100% stacked, to say the least. From 1901 to 1914, the club was known primarily for its, quote, $100,000 infield. And that's because of the all-star lineup that they put together. So some of those names that made up this $100,000 infield were guys like Stuffy McInnes, Eddie Collins, Jack Berry, and Frank Home Run Baker. The team also had, during this time period, Eddie Plank and Chief Bender, who were two of the top pitchers in the American League. As a matter of fact, Eddie Plank still holds the franchise record for career victories with 284 for the Philadelphia Athletics, or the Athletics franchise, I should say, overall, no matter what city they've played in. So if we were to stop a minute and just think about like how good the early athletics were, I think author Lamont Buchanan had said it best. He wrote a book called The World Series and Highlights of Baseball, and he said that the A's fans were so confident that their team was going to play well in those early years, that they would often chant at games, quote, if Eddie Plank doesn't make you lose, we have Waddle and Bender all ready to use, end quote. So this is how uh, good the early athletics teams were. And it definitely showed. We're going to talk about it a little bit more when we get to their best seasons. But this team was stacked from the start. Now, 
this group, this $100,000 infield and uh, really good pitching staff lasted, like I said, up until about 1914. There was about a, a 13 year span here that happened. And what happened was the team played the Boston Braves in 1914 for the pennant and they ended up losing a heartbreaking series to them. And after 1914, manager Connor, Connie Mack, excuse me, decided that he was going to basically start over. So he ended up trading, selling, or releasing most of the team's star players. After that 1914 season, there was about a six-year period where the athletics were very mediocre, didn't play very well, were definitely rebuilding, for lack of a better word. And then we get to like the mid-1920s, and we see this resurgence of big-name players who wore the A on their chest. So beginning in 1927, the club had assembled really one of the most feared batting orders in baseball history. And I know this sounds like a fantasy team, but just listen to this. This is the Philadelphia Athletics roster in 1927, and it lasted until about 1932. So we have four future Hall of Famers on this club at the same time. The first was Al Simmons, who batted 334 and hit 307 home runs over his major league career. You had Jimmy Fox who hit 30 or more home runs in 12 consecutive seasons. You had Mickey Cochran, who's one of the best hitting catchers in baseball history. And you had Lefty Grove, who led the American League in strikeouts seven years in a row. And he also had the league's lowest earned run average, a record of nine times. Those four guys played on this team at the same time. And just to give you an example of how good this team was, when you think about the mid-1920s in terms of dynasties and notable lineups, that usually goes to the New York Yankees and their murderer's row. But the athletics lineup was comparable in terms of how they performed. Teams that faced both squads often considered them to be equal in difficulty. So that stretch of about five years with these four uh, Hall of Famers on the squad was another high point for the Philadelphia Athletics in their history. And things were good. The team performed well. But unfortunately... After that period in the mid-1930s, the club, and we'll talk about it a little more in a second, uh, lost these players and they went into this spiral of just being consistently awful for the remainder of their existence in Philadelphia. There are some notable players I want to point out that did play for Philadelphia even after the mid-1930s when they just did nothing in terms of winning for the rest of their existence. Some of those guys were Gus Zerniel. He was a uh, someone who led the American League with 33 home runs and 129 RBIs in 1951. Not bad. Bobby Shantz won 24 games and was le- named the league's most valuable player. And when he played for the Athletics, you had Ferris Fain. He won two AL batting titles in 1951 and 1952 while playing for the Athletics. And then you had Eddie Juiced, who played shortstop. He was a really talented fielder. He generated lots of walks, was really one of the guys who became valued for that talent, one of the first guys to do that. So there were other players after the mid-1930s who certainly played well for the athletics, but the athletics as a whole were not really a competitive team after the mid-1930s. So let's go ahead and talk about the club's best seasons. We've seen some of the players that donned the uniform Like I said, those early years from 1901 till about 1914, we see, I mean, they absolutely cleaned up. They were the dominant team in the American League. They won the American League pennant six times in 1902, 05, 10, 11, 13, and 14. And they won a World Series when that 
was established between the American and National League, and they won it three times in 1910, 1911, and 1913. So like I said, the early years were great for the athletics. And then of course we had that second coming in the late 1920s, where we saw from 1927 to 1933, the team won three consecutive pennants and two of three World Series during that same stretch. Those two high points, those two sections of years, were the best for the Philadelphia Athletics over the course of their existence. So that inevitably brings us to the question, what happened with the Philadelphia Athletics? You see a team that won several World Series, not only at the beginning of their history, but even through you know this 50-plus year run, uh, multiple stints of winning championships. What would cause a club that achieved that much success uh, over the course of its history end up having to leave for? And really what it came down to is it was a long period of just decline and not being able to recover. And it started mainly due to the Great Depression. So we get to 1932, the teams in that second uh, golden age where they've got the four Hall of Famers, they're doing great. But ever since 1929, attendance had been declining and that caused the team's revenue to drastically drop. So manager Connie Mack had to make a decision. By 1933, he decided to offload the team's highest player payroll. So we saw a lot of these future Hall of Famers move on. There was no investment in up-and-coming players. And most of these guys were sold or traded before the start of the 1934 season. So from 1935 to 1946, with declining attendance and team revenue absolutely slashed, the athletics were horrible. For 11 years, they finished in last or next to last place every single season. And in addition to those poor on-field results during the Great Depression, the front office was, for lack of a better term, a total mess. I'm going to do my best to explain this. We could spend another hour talking about the front office politics of the Philadelphia Athletics. I'm going to give you the abbreviated version, so just stay with me, okay? Remember the original ownership group that we started off talking about? You had Connie Mack, you had Ben Scheib, and then you had some local sports writers. Well, by the late 1940s, Connie Mack had bought most of the shares of the Philadelphia Athletics, including the Scheib family's shares. Uh, Ben Scheib had died back in 1922. Uh, His kids had taken his role, but for different reasons, weren't as involved as their father had been. So Mack had actually gone to the Scheib family and bought out their shares. When he bought out those shares to become the majority owner in the club, he split those shares of the club with his three sons. So you have Connie Mack and you have his three sons as the principal owners of the club. The Scheib family still owned some shares in the club, just not nearly as much. They weren't majority owners. And what happened was there was a civil war that broke out between Connie Mack's three kids. There were two of them that were real penny pinchers. They had been for more than a decade making sure that the club didn't spend any money on improving the roster, that they weren't going to update Scheib Stadium. And Scheib Stadium was falling apart, folks. Remember, it had been built in 1909. We're getting to the late 1940s. The stadium couldn't even accommodate automobile parking because it had been built before uh, Ford's Model T was introduced. That's the state of where athletic fans were going to watch their team. So you had these two kids who wanted to just, you know, keep, spending as little as possible. And then you had Connie Mack's third son, Connie Jr., who kept pushing for his brothers to spend more, to 
improve the roster, to update the ballpark. And his two other brothers just wouldn't listen. So Connie Jr. got so frustrated with his brothers that he secretly went to Ben Scheib's kids, who still had some shares, and he said, let's combine our shares and let's make an alliance and let's sell the team and move them to another city where we can get a fresh start and we can outmaneuver my older brothers. So the two older brothers, when they got wind of this, obviously were very upset and they decided to block the sale of the team by taking out a loan from an insurance company and buying the club outright from Connie Jr. and the Shibes. The problem was, though, the loan that the two Mac sons took was so large, it doomed the club because they couldn't keep up with the monthly payments. And so this happened for a few years at the end of the 1940s. You've got these penny-pinching sons running the club. They own it outright now, but they can't afford the monthly payments. And because of that, coupled with the fact that athletic fans were rightfully tired of their team being awful and annoyed, that things came to a head and the league had to get involved. Uh, The athletics were consistently the lowest in terms of attendance numbers and other owners in the American league had expressed concern to the league president. Like, do we need to keep a club in Philadelphia anymore? This is a mess. So because of these two factors, the Mack brothers were forced by an order from the American league that they had to sell the club and it couldn't be to keep them in Philadelphia. So even if a new ownership group stepped in and wanted to keep the team in the city, it had to go somewhere else. So several suitors did step up. There was one group that came and said they wanted to move the team to St. Louis. There was another group that came and said they wanted to move the athletics to Kansas city. Eventually the offer to move the team to Kansas city was the one that was accepted. 1954, that was the final season that the Athletics played in Philadelphia before they made the move to KC. So what's the legacy of the Philadelphia Athletics? It's been 69 years since they played a game in the city of brotherly love, but there's still traces of this club in the city. You see the Philadelphia Athletics Historical Society still active. You have a local company called Shad Vintage Sports, which sells some really cool retro Philadelphia athletics gear. I would encourage you to check them out. There's people that still proudly wear the athletics logo and sport the name in Philadelphia, even after all this time. And I think that's because the team really defined excellence. It was one of the clubs that led baseball to become a dominant force in American sports. And that city got to watch them go through these periods of really being one of the premier clubs to watch. And then they also had to go through the heartbreak of watching lackluster owners over decades and having to decide, do I want to support this team with my money? That must have been tough to live through. So you see just really a cautionary tale, I think, come out of Philadelphia. This is what can happen when family alliances and small group dictatorships run professional franchises. This squad had the love of the fans. It had the heart of the sport, but it all came down to money and political alliances. And that's what ruined the Philadelphia athletics. And as we've seen with other team autopsies that we've covered, clubs that stick around and have long-term success usually stay financially healthy. They have peaceful transitions of ownership and they keep the fans interest front and center. And unfortunately for the Philadelphia athletics, 
the absence of these three factors over too much time eventually led to its downfall. It has been a pleasure talking about this period in athletics history. There's so much going on right now in terms of if the club is going to move from Oakland or not. We will do a future episode on the athletics when they spent time in Kansas City and their move to Oakland. And who knows, we might have to do an autopsy on the team's move from Oakland to wherever they're going to end up after this. But, uh, you know, one thing is for sure, this team really was important to the early years of baseball. It certainly was one of those clubs we have to put up there as one of the ones that made baseball the popular sport that it is today. And it's been a pleasure to cover them. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. So with that said, folks, thank you for joining me for another episode. I will see you next week. And please remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. Rounders, A History of Baseball in America is produced by Shaker Road Media. A special thanks to our starting nine members, Nathan Halverson and Gordon Strom.